0: Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 is our text. The message is entitled, The Apostate Church, Laodicea. The six churches have given to us a complete picture of the history of the church from 30 AD to the return of Christ. The last one here being Laodicea, the apostate church. You cannot be apostate unless you've been there. You can't fall away from something you never had or ever were. Simple. Ephesus left her first love. Smyrna suffered. Pergamus doctrinal compromise. Thyatira moral compromise. Sardis spiritual deadness. Philadelphia little strength but faithful. And now Laodicea lukewarmness. All represent a type of the church that exists, as you know, as well as a Christian until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the messages are applicable for all times to all who hear, not merely the churches. In John's day, the last four, Sardis, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and now Laodicea, are alive today in their actual form, beginning with the Catholic Church, the dark ages 600 to now. They're powerful, and they're very much alive. As we've seen before, the seven messages, um, they represent four things. And um, this is the last time as mentioned as the last church, the local church in John's day, a period of church history, which we give to you. Then the type of congregation that can exist and will exist throughout the church age. Laodicea again goes into the tribulation, great tribulation and a type of Christian in their own personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The uh, pattern of the seven letters is very much the same proclamation the commendation the condemnation the exhortation and the application only two do not have any condemnation sardis the suffering and philadelphia who is small in strength depending on the lord Busy about the Lord's business. And so the church of Laodicea, as well as the preceding uh, churches uh, we've seen, has a historical background. The, the way God addresses her, the words that he uses, the phrases, the uh, all, all that makes sense. And so let me read our text, and then we'll begin with the historical information about Laodicea. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, um, the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your worst, you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, in white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat on my father on, with my father on his throne, he was near here. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The historical background information. Very relevant, very important. The city of Laodicea was located about 45 miles southwest of Philadelphia and 100 miles due east of Ephesus. Again, that's modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. The city was founded in 250 B.C. by Antiochus of Syria, and he named it after his wife, Laodicea. The city was situated on the Lycus Valley, occupying an almost square plateau several hundred feet um, high, some two miles south of the river, and was the tri-city region of Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. You remember in the... Epistle to Colossians that Paul says, Make sure this letter is read at Hierapolis and Laodicea. It was a Tri Valley, three cities in that short distance. Now, great Roman roads stretched out to the inland of Asia from the coast of Ephesus, and that ran straight through its center, making Laodicea a very important center. Uh, of trade and communication. Again, the roads and the cities uh, were tied together. The city was also very wealthy from its production of fine quality of black wool garments and was famous for these clothing garments, especially the tunics called chumita. And so very black, very beautiful, and, and, and everybody wanted one. If you had one of those, you were in the in crowd, you know how it is. And the city was also a great banking center evident of the fact that Cicero cashed a huge bank draft in Laodicea. So wealthy was Laodicea that in 61 AD, when an earthquake uh, uh, devastated the city, they refused any help from Rome and they um, rebuilt it entirely on their own. In other words, they were very self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency is not good in the Lord. You want to make sure you're Christ-sufficient. Okay, if you trust in yourself and you think you've got it together, pretty soon you'll lose it. (laughs) You won't. It's the worst thing you can do. The city had a famous medical school and it had some famous doctors that have been found on some coins. Zeuxis and Alexander Philolilus and is connected with the temple of um, Menkaru. And so all these archaeological digs and the things we find and the words and the phrase that are addressed to this church, like the others, are very relevant. Laodicea was known especially for its ointment, known as um, Phrygian powder, which uh, cured eye defects as well as ear ointment. Both were manufactured and distributed all over the known world of that day. And uh, how interesting that they had this powder that could help people see and help people hear, yet they were blind and they were deaf spiritually. Interesting. The church had a large Jewish population in 62 B.C. Flaccus, governor of the province, placed an embargo on the exports of Jewish currency of the temple tax. It totaled up to about 20 pounds of gold. And uh, with the, the tax of a half a shekel tax, it works out to about 7,500 Jewish males. So it was a pretty good sized community. Laodosia is modern day uh, Eski Isar, the old fortress. Once again, strong fortress, you know, self dependent. Uh, that's no good. Now, the Church of Laodosia occupied the period of church history from 1950. To the return of Jesus Christ, then. This is the last one. The word, um, uh, two words, Laos people, Diakoa, which means to rule. So the name means the people rule. Jesus is no longer the ruler or the head of this church. It was at the beginning. As you look around to our nation, the people are ruling the church today. Not Jesus. The colleges, the universities, the seminaries, seminars, seminaries. It's the people. They're giving them what they want. The custom and practice was that all the bankers and wealthy merchants uh, contributed to the building of the huge stadiums and theaters and luxurious public bathhouses, shopping centers. And the church was no different in Laodicea. It followed the way of the world. As you look to the church today, it's the very same thing. Sounds you like our churches today. They have all kinds of begging and all kinds of letters and all kinds of raising up funds and this and that. And, you know, we get calls from uh, um, people who raise money all the time. And they say, listen, we can, we'll we come in and we'll raise a million dollars for you and we need so much. I, I, I said, we don't need any money. What? You don't need any money? I said, no, God takes care of us. We don't, we don't do that. We don't rip off the people. We don't merchandise them. We don't. Give them sad stories. We don't put them under uh, pledges that later on they oh, I didn't know. Finance is God's department. They say we never heard that. Good. Now you have. The church was very wealthy, self-sufficient, functioning without Christ. Mere methods, strategies, organizers. Leo Lucia presents the People's Church. The apostate church, Laodicea is the democratic church. The people control the church. Identifying modern-day ecumenicalism and the movement that is growing so strong, the momentum is flowing, merging with the one-world mindset. It's the church of the Antichrist. They have no problem going with him. The church of Laodicea, as well as the city, stood for nothing, but it catered to the wishes of the people. People go to church. This is the goal of churches today, to make you happy. To encourage you, to make your life feel a little more comfortable. Now, Jesus wants to do that, but he wants to do it through transformation. And he's concerned with your happiness, but not primarily with your happiness. He wants to change your heart and your mind like mine. So that you can have the joy of the Lord first then you're going to have happiness in the right sense. It's because of the Lord, not because of what you have or who you are. No evidence ever existed that Paul ever visited the church in Colossians 4, uh, 2, 1 and 4. He says they hadn't seen his face. Uh, Paul was uh, contacted by Epaphras, as you know, he was the pastor of and told of the heresy that came into Colossi that Jesus Christ is not sufficient. So they were attacking his deity, okay? Um, And and Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, in him you're complete. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so anytime there's any attack against Jesus, get away from people. Jesus is complete. That's all you need. You don't need anybody else. Laodicea, ironically, was uh, was the location where the council was held to establish the New Testament canon in 361 A.D. And again, the religion of Laodicea, much like the other ones, uh, we've gone over many of them. The worship of Escalapius, the god of healing for the serpent with the pole, that's the emblem of the medical community. And also the um, uh, zoos, the worship there of Laodicea, again, all these pagan gods, and and they can, they can they shape God after their own image. They can live in the world, enjoy the world, debauchery, everything else, and they can still go to church and have a good time. And they separate their personal life from their secular life, right? And that's the thing about religion, philosophy, or anything else. And so, this is the historical background to Laodicea. Now, having this, then we'll better appreciate the words that are stated to her and how she's addressed. Now, notice the proclamation comes in verse 14. The um, identity of the recipient of the letter is to the angel of the church. Notice, Laodiceans individuals, and we'll point this as we move along. The word angel angelon again is a pastor, not the angel. Angels don't preach over it. The church ecclesia, those call out of darkness into the light. Uh, 20 times the word appears in chapter, um, between 1 to 3. 1, 2, and 3. The only other time you find church ecclesia is in chapter 22 verse 16. Between chapter 6 and 19, the great tribulation, tribulation, no church. The only two women there is the apostle, uh, the, uh, the harlot, the Catholic Church, and then also Israel, who gives birth to the Messiah. There's no church in there at all. God has not appointed the to wrap up the salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans five 9, 1 Thessalonians five nine. Make that clear. Now, notice um, the name Laodicea, As we said, means the rule of the people. That is why this is the only letter that's addressed to people in the proclamation. Rather than the church, notice it's to the church of the, the Laodiceans, not the church of Laodicea. He's not dealing with the church any longer. He's dealing with individuals who have turned his back on him to call them back. Interesting. Keep that in mind as we move through it. In other words, this was a legitimate church of Jesus Christ at one time. Now, notice the identity of the writer is Jesus Christ. The words are those of Jesus, not John, again, as we've pointed out. These things says, it goes back to chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. The chain of command is God the Father to the Son, the Son to his angels, angels to John, John To us, the blessing is in reading, Revelation 1, 3. The uh, message is to all the seven churches, not just their own message, in chapter 1, verse 11. And the division in chapter 1, verse 19 speaks about the things that they saw, the the Christ, glorified Christ in chapter 1, the things that are the church, age 2 and 3, and the things hereafter, Metatelta, chapter 4, all the way to the end, three divisions. Now, the identity is once again fitting regarding The church here. Notice our Lord identifies Himself as the Amen, the title for Jesus. The word Amen in the Hebrew is the idea of acknowledging or guaranteeing the trustworthiness of what is being declared. Usually in response to God's Word, where God says something, somebody says Amen. In the Greek, verily, verily, truly, truly, that's a word that we read 152 times in the New Testament. And it guarantees the reliability also. Now, if that same word, amen, is put in the beginning of the sentence, it says, now pay attention, what's going to be said is very important, it's very true, it's very reliable. If you put it at the end of the sentence, once what is said, uh, at the end it says, he confirms, this is true, this is reliable. This tells you it's going to be, this tells you it was. Beginning or the end, same word. The grammar dictates how it's interpreted. Now, Paul says, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. So the glory of God through us in 1 Corinthians one twenty, He is always true. He is always faithful. The Lord identifies himself as a faithful and true witness here. Again, going back to chapter 1, verse 5. The idea is that Jesus was a reliable, genuine witness to mankind during his earthly ministry as a witness to the Father. He came to bring us to the Father. Paul told Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6.13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ, who witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Jesus never denied the Father or himself or anything that he came to do when he was before Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus in um, John 18.37, Are you asking then? um, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Every who is of the truth hears my voice. So the person who hears and responds and obeys and asks Christ to be that one, this is the one he talks to. Notice our Lord identifies himself as the beginning of the creation. Again, going back to chapter 1, verse 5. The word beginning here, arche, means the person or thing that commences, the first person or thing in a series. The leader or it can mean that by which anything begins to the origin, the act of cause, the context will determine which one of those is being spoken about? Since Jesus, the creator of all things, and without him there is nothing made that was made or that came into existence through him, therefore the word cannot mean that he was created, for he is God eternal. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, God was the word. John 1 1. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, we beheld his glory, it is only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He always has been. He wasn't created. Born at one time, created at one time, that's heresy. He is God eternal. And so the word does does mean that he is the source, the origin, the active active cause, the medium of creation. Revelation 1, 8 told us that. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all part of creation. They're all God, they're all present, all powerful, all knowing. No problem. Colossians says... He is the firstborn, proto-tacos, from the dead. The firstborn from the dead, referring to the first in position of honor in the kind of resurrection, Colossians 1.18. Not that he was born first, but that he's first in priority in the highest form after the kind of the resurrection. He is the visible form of the invisible God. He created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. They're held together. Colossians 1 15 and 17. The nucleus of the atom, the atom itself, should repel, it should blow up. That's what happened when they split the atom. The scientists don't understand why it doesn't do it on its own. They call it nuclear glue or whatever. God calls it Jesus Christ. In Second Peter chapter 3, he says that the heavens and the earth will, will melt with fervent heat. Jesus will just let go of those atoms, split the atoms, everything gone. Then comes the new heaven, the new earth. This identifying mark of our Lord is most interesting in that it was at Colossae that the heresy of Christ, as I mentioned, came. And it was a neighboring city of Laodicea. Micah speaks about Christ coming from Bethlehem and identifies him going forth from everlasting to everlasting, from the vanishing point to the vanishing point, eternity. Micah 5 2. So this was a proclamation to the Laodiceans. Next comes a condemnation. Look at verse 15 through 17. The Church of Laodicea is so detestable, so um reprehensible that the all-knowing God could find nothing to commend it, nothing. Jesus knows what they were doing and had done in the past. The word "know there again, intellectual knowledge to understand, to perceive clearly. Uh, he has that penetrating vision in chapter one. He stands in the midst of the churches, the word "work" there again refers to that which they were occupied in, undertaking that, but nothing is mentioned because everything was all about them. This is the whole philosophy of the American education. It started in the 70s, low self-esteem. Now self, we low self-esteem, so we have self-esteem, this and that. Once you get started in yourself, you'll never get off yourself. The whole principle, well, I got to love me before I love others. Listen, if you start loving you, you'll never get to others. Mm-hmm. You love me. Amazing. You don't need to be taught that. That's automatic. That's your simple practice. Me, myself, and I, the trinity of darkness. Jesus knew their true spiritual condition, declaring his observation, and it's impeccable. Notice he says they were neither cold regarding their relationship to Jesus. The word cold there means chilly cold, like the waters of Colossae, the region they were at. The word is used of a cup of cold water to drink in Matthew ten forty-two. The church was indifferent, lifeless, it could not quench his thirst. They were neither hot, regarding the relationship to Jesus, notice, hot, zestos, it means fervent or boiling, we get a word zest from it. The word is found only these three times in the New Testament, right here in verses 15 and 16. Now, they had no zeal or fervency for Christ, he could do nothing for them. God will not force you. We'll see this as we move along. You have a free will. You have a choice to choose who you're going to live for and who through you, through whom you're going to live. They were told by Jesus that He would rather they were cold or hot. These are the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus is meek and mild, all love. He's pretty, comes out pretty heavy here. The boiling fervent temperature refers to the zealous. Christian who lives for the Lord, wants excellence in his life, never sinlessness, never perfection, but he's turned on and on fire for the kingdom of God. The chilly cold temperature refers to the dead and indifference of a person who's content in some quasi-spiritual condition uh, and regarding the kingdom of Christ. Saying they're Christians, but their life denies it. There's a compromise constantly over and over again. Because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Because you were a Christian once doesn't mean you're a Christian now. We're going to see this as we move along. Um, One writer put it this way, quote, These churches were usually more interested in the social gospel than the gospel action. More interested in reformation than transformation. More interested in planning rather than praying. Examine the churches today in America. Start with Pasadena. That'd be a good start. They were told by Jesus that because they were lukewarm, a mixture of two, cold and hot, he would vomit them out of his mouth. These are the words of Jesus underlying that. All patient, loving God who died for them would spit them out. Lukewarm means tepid, nauseating. How many of us have not expecting a cold drink, taken it out? We spit it out because right away I don't even to have to think about it. I spit it out. The word is found only this time in the New Testament. They were indifferent on the things of God and Jesus and did not claim her as his own at this point. Fence straddlers, middle of the road people. Laodicea, despite its wealth, had bad water supply. Interesting, huh? (laughs) All that money. Something basic water. The famous natural hot springs of Hierapolis uh, located six miles north, uh, traveled across the plateaus and spilled over the broad embankment, directly opposite Laodicea. The cliff was about 300 feet high and, uh, and a mile wide before it cascaded over the edge. By then, the water had become lukewarm because of the travel time. How interesting. He addresses it as lukewarm. Paul speaks about three types of men, as you know in the scriptures. The natural man, who's not born again, I think we would be safe to classify him as dead in trespasses and, trespass and sins, Ephesians 2 1. Then he speaks about a spiritual man, one who's born again, I would again safely classify him as one who's reborn, regenerated by the Spirit of God, in Titus 3 5. But then he mentions the carnal man, the carnal Christian, Born again, but yet still ruled by his carnal sin nature by choice, First Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. I would safely classify him as lukewarm. I have no other choice. I am confident that we can classify religious people, nominal Christians, or those who play church, as ones who are tares among the wheat. Okay. But Peter warns in 2 Peter 2.1, he says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have known it and to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Those people cannot be nominal Christians. They cannot be unbelievers. They're turning away from the commandments delivered to them. You have to be there to turn. You have to reject what you received. It's real simple. We'll see this very clearly as we move along. The New Testament does not warn a non-believer about abiding; he does it to the believer. If there is no possibility of deception of the believer, why write the epistles? Paul could forget it. The one—the Colossians—they're okay; they can't be deceived. First John, ah, you can't be deceived. Ephesians, you can't be deceived. Timothy, you can't be deceived. But he wrote them. Why? He warns against deception. Believers are warned against deception. Not the non believer The non-believers are already deceived. Think. Paul writes to Timothy and gives marks of people in the latter days. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 and 7. Listen to 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Well, I'm a Christian. Praise God. Hallelujah. But they deny the power thereof. They're going through difficulties. We'll come on in. We'll pray. We'll talk. Get in the Word of God. Pray. Get involved in ministry. Die to self. Well, that's you know, I, I need counseling for a year. I need Christian psychology. I need this and that. Really, they call themselves Christian, but they don't have the power thereof. Why? They don't deny themselves. They don't want transformation. They want babysitting. Now, you want to cry? I'll cry with you. You want to work through it? Let's work through it. But I'm going to point you to the Word of God in prayer. The power that's going to transform you. Verse 7 says, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 7. The number one person who has undermined the pulpit of America more than anybody else in the church is Dr. Dobson. Declaring that pastors are not qualified to counsel certain people. Really? Well, I bet you Jesus was excited when Dr. Dobson was born. And when he came to the church scene, to undermine the authority, the pulpit, and the word of God. Christian psychology is like greatness. Neither great nor not. What is it? <laughs> it's all humanistic, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Jesus tells us, some will say in that day, Lord, we prophesy in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Many wonders in your name. And he responds, I never knew you. Depart from me, who practice of lawlessness, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Those people are not born again. Very clear. They're not the only ones. It's not just A or B. There's A, born again. There's B, not born again. And there's C, who are born again and go back in the world. It's A, B, and C. We're going to make this very clear here when you examine the words in the context. The peril of the sower. Tells us about a Christian 30, 60, 100, full Matthew thirteen. God has called us to bring forth fruit for it to remain in John fifteen sixteen. Paul says, "Examine yourself whether you're in the faith. Prove your own self, except you be reprobates." Second Corinthians thirteen five. If there is no possibility, why warn? Paul says, "For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God." Romans eight fourteen. You and I need to make sure that God, the Holy Spirit is convicting me, directing me, guiding me, reproving me. Dealing with me, rather than speculating who these people are, shouldn't we just check out fruit? But that's just when you come to church on Sunday. What to God? All of you are here in midweek. You're not. Where are you getting fed during the week? You're you're surviving on on on, on a sandwich all week long. Sunday morning. Priorities. Simple. But let's just say I'm completely wrong. As I've told you before, let's say you can't walk away. What are you going to charge me? With what heresy are you going to charge me? For me to exhort you to abide in Christ Jesus. To examine your life. What are you going to charge me with? But if I'm right, you've got a heck of a lot of people sitting in church that going to hell. And they've been told by eternal security they're going to heaven. Wow. I would much rather err on my side. And I believe I can prove it through the scriptures. And we're going to see this just in this church. Notice 17. Jesus knew the heart of their problem. Ready? Pride. Ooh. But I know some of you don't have it, but just put up with me. Here we go. Um, Jesus tells them how they viewed themselves and that it was self-deception. They said, I am rich. This is one of the chief boasts that people are caught up today. In the faith movement. naming Nabbit, and Gravit. They're wealthy. Fred Price. How many Rolls Royces does he have? Copeland and Hagen. They boast all the way to the bank. Wow, poor Jesus. He needed to borrow a coin to tell a parable. And he had to borrow a tomb. If he only knew about all this. They said, I have become wealthy. They say, I have need of nothing. Prideful, boastful, self-exalting. Self-evaluating, self-sufficient, self-deceived, self-esteem, no self-denial. Wow. The story of the emperor's new clothes is being propagated today in the church and in our nation by this administration. And there's always a little boy that stands up, the king is naked. But if you say the king is naked and you don't go along with the new vocabulary, you will be chastised. You will pay a price. Notice Jesus tells them their real condition. They did not know that they were wretched, which means distressed. They were enduring toil and trouble, being afflicted in the spiritual arena and not even aware of it. The word appears only one other time in this form in the New Testament. In Romans seven twenty four. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He cries out, praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he moves into chapter 8 in the spirit. Romans chapter 7 is not warfare. Romans chapter 7 is a willful defeat because you're still trusting in yourself. That you can do it in yourself. You've got to die to self and move into the life of the spirit of chapter 8. The warfare is in Galatians and Ephesians. Chapter 7 of Romans is willful defeat by trusting yourself. You still think you can do it. Oh, wretched man that I am, a cadaver strapped to your body. Consuming you. That's the picture of the old, uh, of the time of, of Paul. You kill somebody, they strap their body to them, it would consume you a little bit at a time. This describes the con- their condition from God's perspective. Perfect knowledge. They did not know that they were miserable. They were to be pitied. One article for all five here. The fourth actually describes the wretched condition that followed. The word in this form is found only one other time in the New Testament. In first Corinthians fifteen nineteen. Listen. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we have we are of all men most pitiable. This describes their condition from God's compassion. They had all in this life and nothing in the next. They did not know they were poor, poor spiritually, ignoring the true riches. And it's emphatic in the Greek here. They did not know that they were blind, blind to the things of God and the Spirit of God, being ignorant about the eternal destruction to come. Yet, they sold eye salve for others to see. They did not know they were naked, naked in that they had no standing before God or justification for their sins. Wow. Certainly these people include those who are not born again. Because the first step necessary to receive Christ is to be poor in spirit. The first of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.3. On the Sermon on the Mount. But I cannot exclude the possibility and the contextual implications of those who have drifted from Christ. He's addressing them. As his children, he chastens those he loves. Those are not unbelievers. Those are believers, as we'll see. And don't let any pastor, and they all do it, to give you the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, to tell you that's a Christian coming back because he's heard the gospel, he was raised in the church. That's a lie. The prodigal son is the third parable of three about a sinner repenting, Enjoy being in heaven over one sinner. The one sheep of the 99, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. The father said, Son, your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. That's not a Christian. That's an unbeliever, a sinner repenting. There were two sinners. One left the house and repented when he came back, the other never left the house and never repented. So don't let anybody tell you that prodigal means a Christian is backslidden. That's not biblical. The prodigal was a sinner, lost, never born again until he was born again. Completely out of context. Pastors do it all the time. Why? Because they want eternal security. It's a lie. The Christian knows his own deficiency and bankruptcy. In terms of their own goodness to earn or deserve salvation, we must be poor in spirit, humility, bankrupt. These people were trusting in their riches. Command those who are rich, Paul says, in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. First Timothy 6:17. Nothing wrong with the things, but don't live for those things. But those who desire to be, be rich fall into temptations and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men's destruction and perdition. First Timothy 6, 9. All of us understand this. We were in the world. We see people in the world. We see it all the time. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money. Now listen carefully. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. Some stray from the faith. Those aren't non-believers. Those are believers. You can't stray from something you weren't in. You can't stray from something you were at. You've got to be there. Stray from the faith with their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Simple. Riches and cares of the world cause people to err from their truths. The kingdom parables in Matthew 13. James warns the rich man in James 5. The more you have, the more you want, the more you get, the less you're satisfied. And if you think you're the exception, you're, you're deceiving yourself. <laughs> Hell and destruction are never full. Neither the eyes of man ever satisfied. Proverbs 27.20. I used to give that to my wife and my daughter when they went shoe shopping. <laughs> How many shoes do you have? Oh, just 90. Oh, one more. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 20. Not, not where your heart is, where your treasure is. You got your treasure? That's where your heart will be. Wow. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon and man are synonymous, Luke 16, 13. Wow. What will a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26. This is not the manner of life of a Christian. Not that he doesn't have the potential, but we, 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 we understand that's what we came out of. A Christian is on fire for the Lord. You got to be careful not to drift away. Book of Hebrews it begins, "Don't drift away," and it becomes more severe. The Church of Laodicea and the Laodicean people will be left behind at the Rapture into the Tribulation and Great Tribulation. This is the condemnation to Laodicea. Notice, next comes. The exhortation, 18 through 20. Notice the individual is encouraged to receive the counsel of the Lord. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refine in the fire, that you may be rich. There are There's still hope here. Mark it well. The gold refined in the fire refers to the life submission to the purifying work of the Holy Spirit to remove their spiritual problems. Poverty. To bring them into reality. Buy from is agora, a marketplace, personal purchase. You have to do this. You have to go to the Lord. The process is to subject the gold to extreme temperatures in order for the drought, the impurity to come to the top and you scrape them off and remove them. So when you see the reflection in your face, you know it's pure gold. It has more... Value than the worldly goal. Peter makes this very clear in First Peter chapter one, and other passages. Remember, Laodicea was known for its wealth and its banking. How appropriate this is this? The true riches. They rebuilt the whole city in 661. No help from Rome. Pretty wealthy. Jesus said, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of you tonight. Then who shall these things be? Luke twelve twenty 21. That's that man that had so much harvest and so many barns. He didn't know what to do. He said, I'll tear them down, build bigger ones, and I'll tell my soul, soul, take ease of you. Really? Fool, tonight your soul is required. Then who will all these things belong to? You realize you're going to leave everything when you die, right? If you get buried, they won't even bury you with shoes on. You'll be nice dressed from here up, but that's it. You can't take anything with you. Listen to Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without a price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul might live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David, Isaiah fifty five one three. This is God. He pursues us. He comes after us. He is patient. It, it, when, when he draws that line, he says, it's over. Trust me. It's absolutely over. I counsel you to buy of me white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. He is pursuing these Laodiceans who have rejected him, drifted away. Colossians or Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sinful as a new no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and many other passages. Remember, the Laodiceans were merchants. They knew uh, about their black wool, their garments, their tunics. They were all, they were wearing them. They were wearing them down the street. And people would look at them. Hey, that's a good looking thing. You know, God says, "Ooh." the angels throw up. Because that's not what gets you into heaven. Whatever it is you might have. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has Cover me with the robes of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah sixty one ten. All that we are, all that we're to be, we're looking to Jesus. No one else. Not for us. Not who we are. If any man glories, let him glory in the Lord. Romans, Corinthians, Revelation, on and on. Today there are many who can boast about having every up to date fashion, Gucci. Brada, Dooney, and Bork. I have to ask my wife how to pronounce these and who they were. <laughs> Coach. But they're naked regarding their spiritual garments. Now, if God has blessed you, you have some of these, you don't have to hide them and feel weird. And I shouldn't covet what you have. But just make sure you're not living for that. Somebody drives into the parking lot with a Mercedes, I go, that self-righteous rich pig. I can't. <laughs> I don't say that. I don't say, man, if was really a Christian, you need to put that in the offering basket. <laughs> I don't say that. It doesn't matter to me. You understand? But, but we certainly don't want to put our dependency and think that that's what makes or so That's why, you know, got to be careful. At times, our nakedness is, if you know, our depravity is truly displayed, whether it be by accident or willfully before men, private or public. The nakedness of our sinful depravity is always revealed before God, no matter what. He sees everything. Nothing's hidden from him. Hebrews four twelve, open and naked. Chapter 1, verse 14 speaks about it. He sees everything in the midst of the churches. Then he says, I counsel you to anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. These are all invitations to repentance. Are we clear on this? But not the sinners. We're going to see He's standing outside the church. The ISAB refers to the willful decision to allow the Holy Spirit of God to open their eyes to their true spiritual condition. First Corinthians 2, from 9 on down, it speaks about, about the natural man not receiving the things of God, but the spiritual man judges all things by the Spirit because we have the mind of Christ. Um, uh, first John two, 2, we have an anointing, we don't need any man teach us. The Holy Spirit of God reveals these things. Remember that Laodicea was known for its ISAP called um, Tephra Phrygia, which they exported in tablet form all over the world, which was grounded into powder and recalling their famous market that, you know, the temple of uh, Menkaru. And they were famous for this, and yet they could not see. Wow, how ironic. Today, liberal churches, seminaries teaching neo-orthodox that's neither neo-new nor orthodox straight. It's old and it's crooked in their theology. Seeker-friendly, progressive, liberal, ecumenicalism, emergent, and whatever else comes after this. Set the plumb line, the Word of God, and then judge what you get. And you'll find out if it's straight or crooked. Don't buy the fact when somebody says it's straight when it's crooked. If it's crooked, say it's crooked. Don't go along with their propaganda, with their lies. Notice the individual is encouraged to open the heart to the evidence of God's love. Verse 19. The evidence of love is revealed. Listen carefully. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Question: Are these Christians backslidden or they sinners? Non-believers are not children of God. He says here, "As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten." Context, context, context. Ooh. The word "rebuke" means to bring a man to the awareness of their error to convict. The word focuses on the person. Uh, and it says, uh, pointing out the air. In other words, to give correction. That's the goal. The word is used for confronting a brother who has sinned against you. Go tell your brother his fault. Matthew eighteen fifteen. The scriptures tell us that open rebuke is better than secret love. Faith for the wounds of a friend. deceitful for the kisses of the enemy. Proverbs twenty seven five six. 6. I've told you often, if you have friends that are always tell you how, how good you are, go get some real friends. And interesting, the word love here, you think it'd be agape, right? It isn't. It's filial. Emotional, mental love. Conditional love. Now, you can't trust your emotional love. But you can trust God's emotional love because His love is perfect. He's not swayed by it. It's absolutely perfect. The word chasten. It means to train, discipline, or educate. The word focuses on what a person does to provide consequences for the failure, for correction, not mere castigation. You don't talk like this to a non-believer. You talk to this to a believer who has drifted from you or is in sin. These are not unbelievers. The word is used for correcting those who are in Opposition in 2 Timothy two twenty-five. By the way, the quote is from Proverbs three eleven through twelve. It's quoted in Hebrews twelve five through six again. The chastening of those he loves. Now, notice the acceptance of God's love is to be responded to. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Here's what's lacking in the pulpits of America. Ready? Repent. The other one is sin. <laughs> They're dirty words. We misspeak. We make mistakes. We just you know. Well, no, no, no. You sin. And you need to repent. I need to repent. A change of mind with a change of heart. Not like the repentance of the world that brings forth death because you got busted or you regret the consequences. But because you see sin against God, so you, you agree with God that you're a sinner. And that he alone can forgive the sin that was first of all against him. And so you, you repent. He forgives you, Second Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. And he transforms your heart and he makes you his child. And you begin to walk in the light of the gospel, yielding to the spirit of God. And your life is different as night and day. This was the church of Jesus Christ at one time. And they just drifted away from him. Again, I'm sure there were nominal Christians. Religious people. But he's addressing those, rebuking those, asking those to repent who were his. Notice 20. The individual is encouraged to accept the invitation of God's love. And really, it's a sin against God's love, which is the greatest sin. He identifies himself as patient. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is now outside the church. He is not the head of the church. He's knocking on the door of the individual Laodicean to let him back in. This is the only letter that addresses the individual Laodiceans rather than the church Laodicea. Verse 14. There were those Jesus could see would return. So he's pursuing. He's giving opportunity. They're going to respond. Both verbs are durative present. He keeps on standing and knocking. He's patient. He's loving. Then notice he identifies himself as one who does not violate anyone's free will. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he doesn't break in. You must open it. There's no handle on the outside. No knob. God is calling all the day long to those who are lost. Those who are religious. Those who are nominal Christians. That's the sinner. But here, he's talking to those who have left him. God uses his word to communicate the gospel of salvation through a person's life, through the proclamation, the righteousness of Jesus Christ in Romans 1, 16 through 17. God gives every person a chance to be saved. He may not know how, when, or where, but he will do. Let me give you the, the uh, absolute example. You have two men on the cross, both of them equally distant, both equally heard, one accepted, one rejected. In a conversation. Let's move on. That's what always happens. If not, how can God judge that man? If he doesn't give an opportunity, when God brings it before the judge and says, why did you not accept me? The person says, because I never heard about you. That there's a judgment presupposes that everybody will have at least one chance. I don't have to explain how, when, or where. I just have to tell you that God is just. And God will give that opportunity. Simple. God will use prayer. God will use invitation. God will use everything but... Everybody will stand guilty before God for not repenting. Now, he identifies himself as one who will follow or fellowship with one who repents. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The word dine again refers to the main meal of that day. A time of intimate fellowship. Not how we eat eat and run. The word is used of the Last Supper with Jesus and the disciples in, uh, in Luke twenty two twenty. 20. He identifies himself as being outside the church. Mark it well. We've seen Christ slowly being replaced and counterfeited as the church age has transpired and now we see him outside the church completely and making individual invitations. Now, We're probably very familiar with this verse because it's used by evangelists all the time. I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. But this is not for sinners. This is for Christians who have walked away from him. He's outside the church. He's knocking on their heart. This is not for sinners. It's for believers who have walked away from him. Completely out of context. Now I understand it. But let's stick to the context. So in other words, he's knocking on their heart. That individual, they would respond and return to Christ. Jesus is coming soon. The urgency is there. This is the last church. This was the exhortation to the Laodiceans. Not the church. Those who were open. Now notice 21 22. We have the application. In 21, the declaration is an invitation with promise to reward like the others. The one to receive the reward is the overcomer, as in the six churches before. And, and the first three, this came after the call to hear to Tyrus, Philadelphia, and Laodicea now. It's before it is a timeless promise. It is one that, that abides in Christ Jesus in John fifteen one through 6, abiding in him. It is the faith of the Christian that overcomes the world in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. And the person to reward is Jesus. I, no one else. The Lord will do three things to the individual. Mark it well in 21. The promise to the overcomer will, will grant him to sit with him on his throne. Thrones speak of authority and power. First Timothy 2.12 Thrones speak of privilege and responsibility. Thrones speak of proven qualifications to rule for the benefit of others. Not yourself. God gives you responsibility and power for others to serve others. Not turning inward. The parable. or the parallel here is that the overcomer is likened to Christ as an overcomer as he sits down with his father on his throne. Sitting is symbolic of the finished work. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Sitting on his throne, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goat. In Matthew twenty five thirty three. Jesus will put all things under his Father's feet. And God will be all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28. What does that mean? I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. Whatever he had to do for the, for the, in the Trinity to make salvation possible that way. Once it's all done, it will all go back to whatever it was. We'll see it all together. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Little flock, Luke twelve thirty-two. Agonized to enter in. Many will try to get in, but few they be to find it. Those are the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. What's the answer? No. They will not believe that God will avenge the elect. Little faith. Notice the declaration is an invitation for everyone. There must be a willingness to listen to the individual. If you find yourself as such a churchgoer, a Laodicean, then you need to pay heed. There's a sense of responsibility and accountability to what you're hearing. There's a culpability to every person who does not listen or take the way of repentance. He who has a near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The famous words of Jesus. How you hear, what you hear. Hmm. Notice the declaration it's an invitation to obey what the Spirit says to the churches, again, plural. word here, akua, refers to the faculty of hearing, again, effectively, efficiently. So he's not speaking to deaf people, but people that can understand. The Holy Spirit opens up the understanding, literally let him accurately and effectively hear. The obedience is not limited to the message of the church of Laodicea, but all seven, as they will receive the entire book of Revelation, Churches, again, is plural. The Holy Spirit is speaking, the representative of Jesus Christ, the one that illuminates his word, the one that brings glory to him. He never speaks of himself, but points us to Jesus. We've seen these seven churches, churches individually and collectively to give us a potential that can exist in the church age, as well as individually, but collectively throughout the church age we see the progression of deterioration more and more. The loveless church, Ephesus, as the sower. The suffering church, Smyrna, the wheat and the tares. The worldly church, Pergamos, is the mustard seed with its evil birds. The pagan church, Thyatira, is the leaven in the three meals of wheat. The dead church, Sardis, is the treasure in the field. And the loving church, Philadelphia, is the pearl of great price. And the apostate church, Laodicea, is the gathering of the good and the bad fish to separate them at the judgment. Great parallel. Matthew 13, the kingdom parables. Professor uh, Lehman Strauss, who used to teach at Biola University back in the 80s, had a book out on that. Excellent, excellent commentary. Great parallel. This was the application to the, listen, Laodiceans. This last church does not address the church, but the individual's. Those he loves and he chastens his kids. Not talking about sinners. Thomas Aquinas once called upon Pope Innocent II. The Pope was counting the large sum of money. He says, you see, Thomas, said the Pope, the church no longer can say silver and gold, have I none? Truly, Holy Father, said Thomas, and neither can it say to the lame man more, rise up and walk. Interesting. Today, churches are boasting in their technology and their fame and their size. And, their, and they have councilmen, senators going to their churches, all this. And what does that mean? What does that matter? Wow. Today, everybody wants to feel good and to be indifferent and tolerant. These are the marks of the modern-day church, post-Christian age. But this insults the love and the grace of God by compromising its its holiness apart from Christ. Laodicea is very much alive today. Many tributaries, emergent, seeker friendly and whatever else you want to call it. The trunk is ecumenicalism, one with the world. Remember being lukewarm is repulsive to Jesus. He will vomit you out of his mouth. Remember those he loves, he chastens. So yield. Repent. Remember he stands at the door and he knocks. You alone are the one that can repent and open that door and ask him in. No one else. The message to the church of Laodicea is their condemnation or not knowing their lukewarmness, deceiving themselves by trusting their riches, their own abilities, rather than repentance. And so the message speaks of a local church in John's day. The message speaks of a period of church history, 1950 to the return of Christ. The message speaks of a type of church that canning will exist until the time of the second coming. And most important, the message speaks of a type of Christian in every church throughout the church age. Wow. I really don't make this stuff up. I'm not that smart. All we have to do is let the word speak for itself. Spurgeon Jesus said, you know, don't talk about the word. Don't tell people. He said, the word is like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You don't tell people about a lion. It's just open the cage gate and let the lion out. That's it. Get out of the way. Preach and teach the word of God. The Holy Spirit will do the rest of the work. First in me, then in others. Wow. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us, as you deal with us. You would use us in these last days. It's so dark, Lord, and it's getting darker by the minute. We pray for our nation. We pray for your mercy. We pray you would just protect us. But, Lord, that we would, um, if need be, lay our life down for you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought to you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Only you can repent. Maybe you're a Christian who has walked away and you still keep coming. You're still into all kinds of different things. And God's knocking the door <laughs> of your heart because he loves you. He's chastening you. You repent, you ask forgiveness, it's done. You're on your way. Simple. It's all he asks. If you find yourself in any one of those two camps, this is your prayer to him. And he will save you he forgive you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.